The more I learn about cannabis plants, the more I understand the complexities of designing cannabis gardens. One of the first things I had to rid myself of was the belief that everything I already had learned was correct. True learning in any field necessitates that I remain willing to adapt my understanding when presented with new information. No doubt, this is a challenge we see on cannabis forums and social media threads all the time. Folks argue vigorously and even get angry defending what their mentor taught them, even though there isn't any reproducible support for their belief. Similarly, I often think that I know what I'm talking about, only to find out I do not. On Shaping Fire, I'm very careful with the kind of information I spread, because I know folks trust me to not repeat bullshit. Today's an episode that makes this most clear to me. I thought I was building an interview about why banker and trap plants were so important to the garden and which ones to choose. Well, I was, I was wrong. If you want to learn about cannabis health, business, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out, delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary and a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we're giving away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive that newsletter. This month, Regenerative Farming Nutrient Company Everflux is giving away their full line of products to one lucky subscriber to the newsletter. You'll receive a full-sized bottle of their Bioflux Fermented Plant Booster, their Bamboo Wood Vinegar Biostimulant, and a big old bucket of Terraflux, their infused biochar blend. You'll get all three. Make sure to listen to their commercial during the first break to learn more. And go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I'm your host, Shango Los. Today, my guest is entomologist Suzanne Wainwright Evans, also known as the Bug Lady. Suzanne graduated from the University of Florida with degrees in both entomology and environmental horticulture and has been working in horticulture for more than 28 years and in cannabis since normalization began. Her focus has been on biological control and using pesticides properly. She has worked throughout the United States and internationally, consulting to greenhouses, nurseries, theme parks, and gardens. She is, without a doubt, the preeminent cannabis pest expert in the United States and is a sought-after speaker for cannabis events everywhere. While I thought today was going to be a guide to the best plants to use and why trap and banker plants were so essential, instead we're going to learn about trap and banker plants in depth while also realizing how hard they are to use, the complexities and challenges of using them in the cannabis garden, why the plants suggested so often on forums don't actually work in real life, and finally some strategies for making banker and trap plants work for you if you're willing to put in the effort. Welcome to the show, Suzanne. Oh, thanks for having me. So thank you so much for being here. So let's get right to it. You know, a lot of people throw these terms banker plants and trap plants uh, back and forth. They use them synonymously in a lot of ways, and then they kind of put them all under the category of companion plants. So what I want to do is tease these apart so they can, we can really understand how to use these more effectively in the garden. So would you start by uh, defining what banker plants are and what trap plants are and how they're different? So basically, the idea of banker plants is um, a food source 
for your beneficials, an alternate food source than um, what you want them to feed on in the crop. Uh, one of the most popular, popularly used ones right now in ornamental production is the aphid banker plant system. And the idea is that if you release these tiny parasitoid wasps, um, which uh, kill aphids, if you just release them and you don't have many aphids in your greenhouse, they're all going to die because they can't, they don't really have a food source and have a place to lay their eggs. So what you do is you provide this plant and on the banker plant, you're actually providing a different aphid species. So it, it's kind of a complex system that you have the plant and you have a pest insect on the plants. But what's crucial is, is that you have to make sure that those pest insects, in this situation, these uh, aphids don't move onto your primary crop. So it's kind of a way to maintain a population of your beneficials uh, without actually having the pest in your crop at the time. So we're able to use like an aphid banker plant system, and then we also have one for aureus, which is the minute pyre bug. We're able to use that to build populations of beneficials in the greenhouse before the pests arrive. So you already have this standing army of beneficials ready to go. Also, they can provide food that your crop necessarily can't provide because when you look again at aureus, the minute pyrobug, it needs pollen in its diet. And most crops do not have readily available pollen or the right kind of pollen. And so by providing the pepper plants, we're providing a pepper, a pollen source that aureus really love so that they can reproduce successfully. The flip side of that are trap crops, and they do kind of exactly what they say is they trap your pest. Um, there's actually been some really good research done on this, and unfortunately, in some situations, it's not been very successful. But the idea is is to plant a crop that is tastier than the the plants you're actually growing, and to try to draw the pests out of the the crop you're growing into the trap crop uh, some people will then either bag these plants and remove them other people treat them with a pesticide so that when the pests feed on them they die uh, again there's been work trying this um, one of the more famous studies was done up in Canada and they were looking at poinsettias and eggplants for white fly management but unfortunately the uh, the white flies were just way too happy on the poinsettias and they wouldn't leave to go to the eggplant even though eggplant's a really good host for a white fly also so it's it's not it's not that common as seeing the trap crops as banker plants um, because the thing you also have to be careful of is if you put out these plants and you're growing, let's say, all these eggplants to try to pull whitefly, if you don't take care of those trap crops, it basically can turn into a pest breeding system. Yeah. And I see that happen a lot with banker plant systems too. People forget about them. People ignore them. And then, like, on the banker plant systems, the pepper plants then become breeding grounds for aphids and thrips. So these are programs that you have to stay on top of. You can't, um, you can't just plant them and walk away because you do have to treat these plants for pest crops. I mean, for pest insects and mites. I'll throw in there also, there's also insectary plants 
those are plants we use that provide pretty much pollen and nectar uh, for beneficials. That's a term that's used a bit more outdoors uh, when you, you know, plant, um, you know, plants around like, uh, well, alyssum's one that's used, calendula, things like that, that provide pollen and nectar uh, for uh, the beneficials. Let's dig into the banker plants uh, first, because you caught me off guard. I actually never realized that folks who have got a good program are actually, um, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, pre-charging their banker plants with an associated species, for example, like your example, a uh, an, an aphid, but not an aphid that necessarily prefers cannabis plants. So they are creating a food source for, in this case, the um, the wasps. And but but the 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 species of aphid that they are setting up on those banker plants are actually not one that is harmful to cannabis. Do I understand that correctly? Yes. So on that particular system, um, we generally use barley. Some people use oats, but basically it needs to be uh, a type of, of, of grass. There's Again, there's been studies done looking at what works the best, and barley produces the most aphids on it. And it's the bird cherry oat aphid is the species we use, and it is, um, it's a feeder on monocots. So um, it won't move to dioecious plants. It will stay on grasses. So if you are a grass grower, you would not use this system. But if you are growing not grasses, you, and I, you know, there could always be one weird example, but generally you're okay. So, you know, um, again, if you grow in Dracaenas, no, we don't use this in those. And also there can be some issues with some lilies, but um, so far, as to date, we have not seen the bird cherry oat aphid actually on cannabis. And so that way, you're rearing these aphids. And this particular system only works with Aphidius colmani. There are several different aphid parasitoids, but this particular system is for colmani, which uh, the colmani will parasitize things like cotton melon aphid, and it does also parasitize the cannabis aphid. Um, is it the magic silver bullet for cannabis aphid? No, but it definitely is part of the management program for it. Yeah, and, and overall integrated pest management in the truest sense. Yes, yes. Uh, um, one of the th I find it interesting that uh, banker plants actually have got two very distinct roles that not only can they be uh, pre-charged with an associated non-pest that can feed your beneficials because I think all of us who have used beneficials in the past have run into the problem that when the beneficials do their job and suddenly the pest numbers are down, suddenly there's no food source for them and they either die or wander away. But then also secondarily, since the banker plant is uh, of a type that the pest also likes, the pests are hopefully um, moving over to the banker plants as well. So, so not only are you providing a secondary food source for them so they stay alive, um, your, your beneficials stay alive, but also um, uh, it creates a secondary environment that's not your cannabis. 
Yeah, but I would never depend. I don't think it's ever really with the the barley. It's not really going to pull any of your pests from your cannabis. Mm. Um, now on the pepper banker plant systems, because you know anybody's ever grown peppers, know the Western flower thrips love them. Onion thrips can get on them. Spider mites can get it on them. Several aphid species can get on them. I mean, peppers could possibly function in a way as a trap crop but um and it was funny i was just talking to um another researcher about this the other day oftentimes when an insect is raised on one plant it's very difficult to transfer it to an alternate host um that it even though we know it feeds on it 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 tends to want to stay on the same plant species that i it grew up on um and often it's prodigy too so again this is why I, you know i'm trap crops not completely sold on it for for key pests we're dealing with, I would say, in cannabis and ornamentals. I'm not talking about agriculture or other settings, um, but it's, it's, it's something that you really would have to really work on. And generally, again, it's too much work for most people to deal with. Yeah, well, the, the research alone to make sure that you're fine-tuning your alternative pest and also, you know, uh, pre-charging them, uh, I mean, this is certainly at a commercial scale. You know, um, you know the, the, the commercial folks who are listening, and they're probably getting a lot of value out of that, but th- that's way beyond what a, you know, a, uh, a state medical grower or a, a personal grower are probably going to use. So are you saying that if, if our pests are growing up on cannabis and they um, have grown up uh, eating it and so therefore they like it that in in most cases using a trap plant that we perceive is going to be tastier than cannabis might not actually be an effective that 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 folks in cannabis are using these trap plants but it's really not a solution it's it's more of an ornamental solution than a cannabis solution well, until the research is done, and we know for sure, it's hard to have an answer. And also, let's take, for example, bean plants. Bean plants are one um, that we started doing some stuff with, actually, in roses um, outside. And because spider mites love bean plants. If you want to raise spider mites, like I'll raise them sometimes here at the house, you know, I'll raise them on bean plants. That's a, one of their favorite food sources. Um, when we were using them in roses is like, okay, as soon as we see spider mites on the bean plants outside, we know they're coming on the roses. So then is when we would start our predatory mite program. Interestingly enough, we found out that it turned out to be a better indicator plant. And that's really what an indicator plant lets you know when a pest is in an area because it indicates to you um, that it actually worked out better for flea beetles because the flea beetles would actually hit the beans before they would move into the roses. So it actually, we learned something from that situation. But, you know, I sometimes wonder, you know, if we have these bean plants out, how do we know that's just not a separate population breeding on the beans than what's actually breeding on the roses? And are those two-spot spider mites in the beans going to move into the roses? And we don't know until 
there's study done with a control, it's hard to know. But again, the number one problem I see over and over and over again is someone forgets about the bean plants, they get busy doing other things, and then next you know you have bean plants covered in webbing and, you know, they're infested with spider mites and you know, a little late. It's a little. Well, <laughs> Your indicator is, was probably ten days ago. <laughs> yes, yes. And again, I I see that happen. And the other thing, um, and I just had a situation with this in uh, Maine where somebody contacted me freaking out because they had aphids all over their foliage and it turns out that they were using a cover crop and this is this happens all the time in cannabis. They're using cover crops indoors. And the cover crops turns into just a, a breeding ground for all kinds of insects. And aphids often will, you know, if they're not happy or their populations get high, they'll, they'll pick up and leave and they'll start walking up the cannabis plants. So in that situation, the aphids weren't doing any damage to the cannabis. They were just out looking for a new host coming off the the cover crop, which some people are using air quote cover crops as either banker plants um, or insectary plants, but they're not paying attention to what other potential pests they could get. So as far as indicator plants go, I understand that there's a lot of specificity from one pest to another, but are we lucky enough in cannabis that there happens to be an indicator plant species that is similar to cannabis perhaps, that's a little maybe sweeter or tastier for these plants that we may be able to plant alongside our cannabis that would draw the pests first and we could keep an eye on those before they hit the cannabis? Well, it depends on what pests. And, you know, if you look at right now what our major pests, the stuff that I get contacted about every single day, you know, cannabis aphid, hemp russet mite, root aphid, um, those, they're cannabis specific. They don't live on alternate hosts at all. Um, now, I have been contacted a lot this year about thrips. Now, thrips because, um, again, a lot of what I'm finding um, are onion thrips. Um, which I will consider a generalist. You know, I, I hate when they say the name onion thrips because everybody assumes, oh, it's just a pest of onions, but that's not necessarily true because they're a problem in ornamentals. Uh, there was just a survey done in Canada, and something like a quarter of all thrips found in the Niagara region were onion thrips over western flower. So they're definitely around. Um, but, you know, again, are they going to want to be in uh, ornamental pepper over the cannabis I don't really know and also remember the immature insects cannot fly so all you can do is pull adults you can't pull eggs you can't pull immature mites can't fly so you really can't pull mites either so really again this could only be for flying adults and it's possibly you know they've already on your crop laid lots of eggs I, I just I, I just see Growers trying to do a lot of this stuff, and I don't want to say they get in over their head, um, but we don't have enough specifics yet and enough research yet to support a lot of that. And growers have to stay focused on maintaining these plants, which tends not to happen. Again, I was at a facility out on the West Coast uh, earlier this year, and they're like, yeah, we have banker plants, you know, the peppers, they're sitting around. I'm like, well, are you putting aureus on them? And they're like, no. And I'm like, then get rid of them, you know, because, again, they're just a breeding ground for broad mite, western flower thrips, onion thrips, spider mites, 
you know, uh, aphids, you know, just get rid of it if you're not going to do the program. Let's double back to the interesting comment you made about cover crops indoors, um, because, of course, polyculture is becoming increasingly popular, both outdoor cannabis growing and now indoor. And there are some great examples of it, um, because, of course, you know, having these other species of plants, not having the, the monocrop is, is really great for the rhizosphere and for, you know, uh, the plants to be able to communicate and share nutrition and all this great kind of stuff. But but you're suggesting that these 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 indoor cover crops are also a potential threat. Will you speak to that a little bit more? Yeah, well, I'm going to say this and I've said this a million times, you know, when growing indoors is not like growing outside. And outside when you do cover crops, you know, you, you've got the natural ecology, the natural soil-ish. I'm giving you air quotes on that natural soil because we mm -hmm. all know soil's been altered too much. You also have thousands of insects and mites that can move in naturally and help keep things a little more in check. When you enclose yourself into an indoor grow that's sealed up, it is nothing like outdoors. You don't have rain which, which washes pests and bugs off of plants. You don't have, again, parasitoids just flying in. You don't have all these different beneficials showing up. And basically, do you put up a giant wall against beneficials getting in. Um, and so when pests get in, that's why they go really crazy indoors because there's nothing really to control them. Um, and that's, again, kind of the issue inside is because a lot of these cover crops have complex pest systems and people don't think about managing pests on them. So now essentially you've got two crops. You've got your cannabis and you've got your cover crop. You have to research what pests and diseases those are going to get and you have to treat those for the pests and the diseases now. Yeah, that's frustrating too, especially since, you know, I mean, because most of the folks who are going to be running an indoor polyculture environment, they are probably also of the mindset that they are going to be using beneficial insects. And so that's, that, that's great on its face, but listening to you describe all of the different variables that help us when we are growing outdoors, reproducing those indoors becomes less and less likely based on, you know, time, resources, and just the difficulty in trying to, for example, you know, uh, bring in the variety of beneficial insects that we're able to get outside. So let me, so, so clearly you're not a big fan of, of, you know, cover cropping or probably more accurately green mulching indoors, but let's turn that on its head for a second. If somebody were to going to polyculture indoors, um, even if it's a thin sliced window, what do you think would be the best way for them to go about it? Like, is there a, you know, if, if 95% of people who are going to do it are going to do it wrong, is there a 5% best practice that you would recommend for people who are um, dead set on doing polyculture indoors? And what would be your best advice for them? Well, first of all, you know, and this is a thing that, you know, I bang my head on the wall kind of thing because again I get contacted by numerous growers every single day and a lot of the polyculture living soil people freak out when they find bugs and 
and and the thing is is if you're trying to recreate indoor ecology you you're gonna have bugs in there and remember you know less than one percent of insects are really a problem of economic you know what we consider economic importance where they're going to damage the plants but people want to do this stuff inside but want to see no insects at all but a lot of the insects that I am getting images of are just absolutely benign things that, you know, detritivores or, you know, maybe specific to feeding on the cover crop. Um, but the, if, if you wanted to do it, um, the first thing I would do is I would pick your plant. I would research that plant and look, is, is it a host for spider mites? Is it a host for cotton melon aphid? Is it a host for onion thrips? And I would look to make sure that none, not, not, can it just feed on it occasionally, but is it a major problem? I mean, I'm going to pick the worst possible cover crop ever, soybeans. Because um, soybeans are beans, you know, we were talking about before, and they're great for breeding spider mites. Right there, soybeans would be off your list. I'm also pretty anti-marigold because when we grow marigolds in greenhouses, they get every pest problem known to man. They get spider mites. They get thrips issues. They have a lot of disease issues. People like to hold marigolds in this, you know, holy vessel of this is this amazing plant. <laughs> this is true. You're so right. <laughs> but the problem is people don't understand genetics. They don't understand breeding. A lot of you know, old stuff that refers to marigolds are actually pot marigolds, which are calendula, which are not today's marigolds. And today's marigolds, and this, this is a whole nother rabbit hole discussion, these plants that you get today and the seeds you get today have been bred for human characteristics. What do we want? We want them this height. We want them this color. We want the big showy petals. They've not been bred for feeding beneficials, uh, for feeding pollinators and things like that. And we've bred a lot of the characteristics out of these plants that insects needs. You look at a marigold and how tightly petaled it is. How is a beneficial supposed to get down in there to get pollen and nectar? If you look at some of the older, simpler marigolds that are more single-petaled, you know, it's, you have easier access there. Same thing when you look at roses. The older rose varieties that open up, the bees and beneficials can get in there to the pollen and nectar. These new, really tight, bald, fancy roses, they can't have access to it. And in some plant species, they've actually bred to the point there's basically no pollen or it's useless pollen. Um, in the plant. So you have to be really careful about looking at these plants and understand just saying marigold. Marigold's like saying almost automobile. There's, it's, <laughs> it's a generic term. It can encompass multiple, you know, again, it could be calendula. It could be different things. So it's, it's too broad of a term. Um, so, you know, I know a lot of people look at clover and then, of course, I get the messages. They're freaking out. And they got thrips. <laughs> clover mites. Oh, clover mites. Yes. And they're very visible. Um, and, but again, thrips is a secondary one. Now the question is, is what thrips do they have on the clover and will it feed on cannabis? 
And this is where it gets into identification. And you can't just use a hand lens normally to identify thrips species. To tell the difference between like western flower and onion, I mean, you pretty much have to have super high magnification or put them under microscope, which is high magnification. Um, you know, a few of them, like, you know, a kinothrips, that's easier to identify, but that's super high magnification. But, you know, you can't just stand there and say this is that without, again, you got to get in there and look at their little hairs basically on their bodies to tell them apart. And this is why it's complicated. Um, and what frustrates me when I go to a lot of these meetings is people just oversimplify it. And they're like, oh, just plant this cover crop and you'll never have any pest issues. If it worked that way, why do I have all these <laughs> growers contacting me every single day? So I'm going to go right down that. I'm going to I'm going to put salt in that wound, Suzanne. So so certainly people who are commercial growers who are listening, you know, and they've got a dedicated IPM person, and they are you know hopefully have got the time to do the kind of research that we've been calling for so far, so that a a, a proper program can be developed for their bioregion and uh, particularly their types of you know, environment and plants, whether indoor, outdoor, or greenhouse. Um, but the vast majority of people who are listening today are not commercial growers. You know, they've got somewhere between, you know, four and 40 plants in their yard, and they don't necessarily have the time and access to resources uh, to do an entire program. Um, with the touring that you have done so far, and, and I, know, I know that I'm talking about an entire country, but bear with me. Have you come across any plants that you think are, you know, pretty good surefire plants to, to plant alongside your cannabis that are going to provide either some uh, banker or trap benefits so that people who, the same, the same people who are just like, oh, I heard that marigolds are good around my cannabis plants, so they, so they grew marigolds, right? And we now know that's not appropriate. But, but even though we know that done properly, this is a bigger question. Before we go to commercial, is there, are there any like varieties that you think are generally going to help? And if you're going to plant anything without doing your proper homework, you should go with these. Well, you know, you should ask me what I do in my yard because, you know, even though I don't grow cannabis here, you know, I grow tomatoes and I ring all my tomato plants with alyssum. All of them, because we know, and there's been good research looking at this, alyssum is a really good uh, pollen nectar source for aureus, the minute pyre bug, which loves thrips, which will feed on spider mites, and loves cannabis plants. Whenever I scout um, uh, cannabis outdoors, um, whether it be New York State or California or Oregon, Washington, I always find aureus in cannabis so we know it loves that crop um and the, again it needs pollen and nectar and your cannabis isn't going to have pollen and nectar tomatoes early on don't have pollen and nectar but i put the alyssum around them and then that will feed them and um commercial growers actually grow pots of alyssum early in the season um, and then they sprinkle aureus on there and they build the aureus population up on them so that when the thrips come in the spring, they have a whole army of aureus there for you. I will tell you, aureus, though, needs at least 12 hours of sunlight um, or it will, you know, go into uh, what they call diapause, which is basically, you know, insect hibernation. 
And, you know, in the southern regions, we don't worry about that too much. But up north um, in greenhouses, when we start the alyssum early, we just put them under, you know, if you don't have artificial lighting, we just put them under artificial lighting to make sure they get 12 hours of light first. But for the homeowner, the smaller grow, um, you know, you can buy alyssum uh, from seed and you can just start it. Um, I would not recommend buying finished plants in because you do not know what they've been treated with. Uh, you don't know if they've been treated with an insecticide. You don't know if they've been treated with a PGR or anything. So it's better off to grow them yourself just to, to make sure. But I think alyssum is one that we have a really good track record in ornamentals and vegetable with, with that we're seeing it's slowly being adopted into cannabis, and it's got a good track record of being a good banker plant as well as a, uh, a nectar and pollen resource plant. Fabulous. So we're going to go ahead and take our first short break and be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is entomologist Suzanne Wainwright-Evans, the bug lady. For years, organic cultivators have been looking for a replacement for using peat moss. Peat moss has long been the go-to soil amendment for water retention and container growing, but organic growers know that peat moss is an unsustainable resource, and the mining of peat bogs destroys habitat and releases sequestered carbon. But peat moss works so well that many have continued to use it. But now there's finally a revolutionary replacement for peat moss that shares the same benefits while also being sustainable. Pit moss sounds and acts like peat moss, but instead of being mined from fragile ecosystems, it actually is made from upcycled organic paper and tree bark. Pit moss is excellent at retaining water in your substrate and creating air pockets and tiny living environments for microbes. Pit moss instantly increases aeration, nutrient absorption, and water conservation too. Carefully and locally sourced, pit moss is the result of decades-long research into the use of recycled paper fibers. Pit moss has the fluffy nature of peat moss and handles exactly the same. And like peat moss, pit moss is inert, so it won't change your pH. Available in a range of preparations, including a nutrient-enhanced blend, a coco-coir blend, and also as an organic soil conditioner with no added nutrients. Pit moss is also available as an animal bedding. So go to pitmoss.com now to learn more. That's P-I-T-T. M-O-S-S dot com. Growing healthier, more sustainable plants. Pit moss. For many, transitioning to organic gardening can be overwhelming. There's so much to learn about soil biology and fermentation. Bioflux Fermented Plant Boost from Everflux simplifies organic farming so you can start growing organically today. Invented by a California farmer growing organic for 40 years, Bioflux is a fermented natural farming preparation for those who want a natural microbe booster without having to brew their own. This extraordinary chemical-free growth and terpene enhancer improves root development, accelerates the conversion of organic matter into humus, increases nutrient use efficiency and uptake, and increases beneficial microbe activity. In addition to the Bioflux fermented plant booster, Everflux also makes an activated biochar called Terraflux that is infused with the Bioflux plant booster. Imagine combining the buffering and rhizosphere enhancing qualities of biochar infused with a range of earthworm castings, insect frass, kelp and crab meal, oyster shell, and other ingredients. I'm using Terraflux infused biochar this summer myself, and it smells alive, rich, and potent. 
These products have been scientifically proven to match yields and increase flower quality and pest resistance when compared to traditional NPK inputs. If you are looking for reliable organic fertilizers that will free you up to focus on other aspects of your garden, consider using the range of all-natural regenerative fertilizers and natural biostimulants from Everflux. Find out more at everfluxtechnologies.com or by following their Instagram at Everflux. While I love growing under the sun, there's a lot of good reasons to grow indoors. And if you're like most folks, you want a lighting source that grows high-yielding, healthy plants without using excessive amounts of electricity. BIOS Lighting creates biological lighting solutions that brings the natural brilliance of the outdoors into your grow room. BIOS Lighting has the attributes that I look for in a horticultural lighting solution. I've bought those cheap lights online, and they're difficult to work with and fail in no time. In contrast, my BIOS LED light is industrial grade to last a long time. It is IP66 wet rated, so little foliar overspray won't harm it. It is easy to clean without taking it down, and of course, the most important aspect, it is built for the exact light spectrum I want for great yielding, healthy cannabis plants. And it doesn't hurt that their lighting rigs look badass too. Many horticultural LED lighting systems are based on irrelevant performance metrics, and people love to argue online about these numbers. I prefer to judge on par photon efficiency and how happy my plants are, and the BIOS lights exceed my expectations in these categories. BIOS lights have an optimized broad spectrum that maximizes photosynthesis and plant growth, while also providing the ideal conditions for superior par efficacy and a comfortable visual experience. I also love their attentive and overeducated customer service folks. BIOS starts with a team of biologists before getting the electrical engineers involved. They have studied how light impacts cannabis plants and devised an overall strategy that works. I encourage you to check out their website at bioslighting.com to learn more about how this strategy can work for you. And Shaping Fire listeners can get a special deal. Use the discount code SHAPINGFIRE, all one word, no caps, for 10% off your entire purchase. That's bioslighting.com. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose, And our guest this week is entomologist Suzanne Wainwright-Evans, the bug lady. So Suzanne, you know, we were talking in the last set about how, you know, folks want to be polyculture and organic and regenerative. And when they try to do that indoors, um, often they've got a headspace that they also want sterility, right? And one of the things that we know from trying to do regenerative agriculture outdoors is that sterility is not really our goal outdoors because um, we are trying to create an entire ecosystem back and forth with the ecosystem around us. You know, we're trying to blend with the ecosystem and not stay separate so that the natural benefits of the outdoor environment can be supportive of our cannabis garden as well. Well, indoors, of course, we are not getting the benefits of being, you know, couched in a regular organic environment. And so, indoor folks, they, they, they try to walk this line between we need to keep the grow uh, clean and, and air quotes sterile so that we don't run into any disease or pest pressure. But at the same time, you know, doing that is not going to be very effective for trying to replicate an ecosystem. What kind of advice do you give folks who are trying to walk that line? Well, I think it's a very difficult line to walk. And again, this this mindset of you can reproduce outdoors indoors i i just i don't think it's completely possible you you 
you can be sustainable, um, but you also then understand that you are running at higher risk of pest and disease by doing that. Um, I know that's not what you want to hear, um, but that's, especially over the last few years, working with more regenerative uh, growers is, is what I see over and over again. Um, if you're going to not change out your soil, for example, and you're pumping in, you know, all these fungi and bacteria and top dressing with compost, you know, mites and insects are going to find their way in because decomposers are going to want to live in that soil. And you're going to have a lot of that kind of stuff living in the soil. And just again today, I was contacted by somebody else that, oh my gosh, there's all these mites in my soil. How do I kill them? Well, they're most likely just either detritivores or they're feeding on fungus or some kind of soil decomposer kind of thing and they're not hurting anything but they can get to such high numbers that you literally can scrape them off the edge of the beds with credit cards because they get so heavy and people don't want to see that but if you're going to grow in these kinds of systems that's the kind of stuff you're going to have to deal with and that's just the the, the trade-off and you're going to have to expect to see you're going to have a lot more springtails. Um, you're going to have a lot more, again, of the, these uh, decomposing kind of insects and mites in those systems. Um, the question I get all the time is, do they damage the plants? And honestly, we don't know. And, you know, things like uh, springtails, which are columbola, um, you know, we honestly, they haven't been studied as extensively. Um, and there are numerous species of columbola. So if someone just contacts me and says they have springtails, you know, super high numbers, are they going to cause damage to my crop? Honestly, I don't know because we don't know what species it is and does that species actually cause damage. Because in Europe, they do have problems in like anthurium production with springtails damaging the roots on anthurium crops and they're busy trying to kill them where oftentimes over here in the U.S. it's seen as a sign of soil health. Again, I think this comes down to different species and the different environments and what's going on. So you can't just make a broad blanket statement that they're good or bad, but the reality is is if you have a high organic matter soil, you're going to end up with a lot of them and you're just going to have to learn to live with them. And it brings us back to, you know, the, you know, your, your gospel, which is identification is everything. And it's interesting, you know, I, I tour quite a few regenerative cannabis gardens and how few of them, I also see people having a microscope nearby. And what I continually tell people is, you know, it's one thing when you are going to do kind of like a, a non-regenerative synthetic grow when your best practice is kind of like kill everything, right? And, and you're just kind of like carpet bombing your grow with, with the things. But, but, but in a regenerative grow, when you're like, okay, we only really want to get rid of the 1% of the pests that may actually be a threat. The only way you're going to do that is if you get educated on identifying these um, these pests and, and, and have a microscope, which honestly you should probably have to be making sure that your compost is active anyway. And um, I can imagine that you are busy giving you know, lessons to people when you tour their grows that says, you know, you need a bench over here with a microscope. Well, I generally, I find that most growers don't know how to use microscopes, and if they have microscopes, they don't take care of them, which is painful to me. They don't keep the covers on them. 
because speaking from someone that had to have their microscope recently, one of my microscopes recently serviced, get your microscope clean. It's $300. Put a cover on it to keep the dust out of it because, yes, there's dust in grows. Um, but that's why I really push people to the Dynalites because it's, it's, it's sealed. You don't have to worry about, you know, stuff getting in there. They're easy to use. You can take pictures because when you say microscope, microscopes are meant to be used with slides. And a lot of the insects, growers aren't going to slide mount insects. It is a pain in the backside to do. You got to put the special glue mount down. I use like a little one hair bristle brush to get their legs in position and get the slide cover on. That's not going to happen. Um, dissecting scopes are more, I think, would be appropriate. But remember, a microscope or a dissecting scope don't necessarily come with a camera. So now you got to buy a camera. And that's why a Dynalite is so easy because it's essentially a dissecting scope with a built-in camera. And that way you can easily take pictures and, and send them because learning to use a microscope is a whole thing in itself. Um, and I, I when I saw you when I saw you present with the Dynascope at Regenerative Conference in uh, in Humboldt, I was really blown away by it. But I was I had the impression that it did not have the sensitivity for everything that I might need in the garden. And I was thinking, oh, might as well not get it because I'm still going to need a microscope um, at some point anyway. And and what I'm hearing you say now is actually making me think. Well, if I don't actually need the microscope, if actually what I need is a dissection scope that the tool that you showed us the dinoscope actually may be the one tool for for all the gardeners needs is that your experience well i don't want to say all the needs because well, probably not you, for you, not probably not for looking at compost tea compost but. you need a microscope when it comes in fact uh, for insect stuff uh, you know the first thing i bought 20 years ago well first big fancy thing I bought uh, for was a dissecting scope, not a microscope. A dissecting scope, you can put a leaf under, you can cut a branch under, because you can put, you know, things with height on them. A microscope, you can only put things with slides. So you have bugs on a leaf, you don't put a leaf under a microscope, you got to lift the bug off, you got to put it on a slide, you got to put a slide cover on and do all that. A dissecting scope, you can just slap it under and look at it and away you go. Um, a Dynalite basically functions as a dissecting scope with a built-in camera. Now, you can buy um, cameras for your microscope or your dissecting scope, but when you buy your microscope or dinoscope, you have to, I mean, microscope or dise uh, dissecting scope, you have to make sure it's a triocular Cam uh, triocular system, so you have one for each eye, and then you have a third hole that you can mount a camera on, because it is, I mean, the pictures people send me, and this, you know, this is one of my gripes too, you know, if you want free ID, at least meet me halfway and send me decent pictures. <laughs> you know, stop putting your camera up to the eye hole on your microscope and trying to get an image that's blurred around the edge and all that. I mean, you know, you can get a Dynalite. The entry-level one is like 100 bucks. I think the one that's $325 is a better place to be. But you can even get a decent dissecting scope for like $300 these days. And we're not talking, you know, yes, you can go spend as much as you want. Um, you know, I, you can spend $10,000 on a microscope. But for most cannabis people, the, the ones from 
Celestron makes a really nice dissectoscope, and I really love the Celestron microscope. I love that microscope. If if you're somebody that's going to spend 10 hours a day at a microscope counting, you know, cells or things like that, yes, you need the $10,000 microscope because it will really reduce the eye strain. If you're just slapping something on there, looking for five minutes, and then you're done, you can use these three $400 microscopes, and they work perfectly fine. And the one from Celestron, that microscope, um, I've had it now a year, and I absolutely love it. I have nothing negative to say. And it's a triocular one and you can mount a camera right on it. One of the things that's great about the Dynascope too is that it's so compact that um, it's really easy to safely pack in your gear and take with you either out into the field or you know if you're if you're doing the rounds over uh, multiple commercial grows. It's just you know most of us think about a uh, a, a a microscope or a dissection scope. It's very it tends to be more it, you set it up and it stays and it lives in this one place. But the Dynascope is really. Um, you know, it's it's highly mobile. So for so for folks who are going to forget the name Dinoscope, uh, I'll Dynolite. go ahead. Excuse me, Dinolite, um, uh, like I just did. <laughs> uh, I'll go ahead and put a link uh, on the page for the podcast episode at uh, shapingfire.com. So going back to the the banker plants and the trap plants, Suzanne. You know, a lot of people have a difference of opinion of of actually where you plant them um, with container gardening. Some folks believe that you should be planting planting them below the cannabis plant in the same pot so that they're close. Whereas, uh, you know, from what I've been gathering from what you've been saying so far and how I like to do it is you actually put the plant in its own pot uh, along the edges of the growing area. What do you find is the best practice? I think having them in their own pots because if they get a pest problem, and they're in a pot, you just pick the pot up and chuck it out the door and it's gone. And uh, with the aphid banker plant systems, we replace those like every two weeks. So it's a constant wow. revolving door. Um, and alyssum, if it gets too hot, um, it can stop blooming. And now you've got all this, you know, just greenery in your pot. Absolutely do them in separate pots. They have different watering requirements. They're not the same plant. I would not plant them right in the pots. I would have them in pots you can remove. The other thing um, is, let's say... Okay, let's just pretend, you know, everything's going great. You've got great aureus going in there with your alyssum. But, oh, my gosh, now we've got hemp russet mite. Well, you're going to have to come in and spray because I've said this before, and I know a lot of people hate me, but, you know, I do not think that any of the biocontrol agents are really controlling hemp russet mite. All our successes have been coming in and spraying with a good solid horticultural oil. Now, if you've got those banker plants and they're planted in your pots and you come in and spray, they're going to get oil on the banker plants and possibly could either damage the plant because I don't think alyssum really wants a coating of oil. Um, and also um, it could kill some of the insects. And, and, you know, if you're going to spray, you know, something like Bavaria or Isaria, you know, whatever you're going to spray. Um, so the banker plants, what we do, and this is what we do in ornamental systems, is we go through, we just gather up all the banker plants, we take them away, we do our spray, we wait a few days, and then we bring the banker plants right back in. Yeah, so that way you want to keep them in their own pot so they're mobile. You can remove them and you can bring them back and you can swap them out when you want. And and honestly, the, you know, if you're going to be properly taking care of these plants, they're, they're, you know, the food that their rhizosphere wants or whatever, the soil requirements are likely going to be different than what you want to be doing for your cannabis anyway. 
yes. And, you know, I had one um, grower that um, he does the diet. Again, this is ornamentals. But, again, you know, I've had a bajillion years of experience in ornamentals. And then what I've been doing is how can we take that knowledge and apply it to cannabis? Um, but this one ornamental grower, he keeps lined along the wall of his greenhouse mullen plants with another a beneficial insect called Dicyphus. Um, it likes thrips, white flies, and also snack on spider mites. And then when he has a pest issue, then he picks up a couple pots of the mullen plants and he goes and sets them and he just sisters them next to where the pest problem is and leaves them there so that the, the Dicyphus then move into the crop, clean up the problem, and then eventually he moves the mullen plants back together into their lineup along the wall where the um, Dicyphus can just sit there and continually breed on the mullen. So he he uses them as like a hotspot treatment. So again, another reason why to have them in pots. Yeah, that's a really great best practice. That's an awesome idea. So when choosing them, I mean, uh, certainly it sounds like the the majority of the time we are going to choose our plants um, based on the specificity of, of what our pest is and what our alternative um snacking pest will be for our beneficial insect and and really that will will kind of reverse engineer which plant we want to go with um to sister with with the cannabis plants there is a secondary awareness that folks have about annuals and perennials because some of these plants that people have a tendency to use they've got shorter life cycles and and they really just want to plant it and forget it, right, which is part of the problem. But how do you explain to people or, or get them thinking in the right way about, um, you know, matching the life cycle with of the plant, the, the, the banker or trap plant, with the life cycle of the cannabis? And my suspicion is you're just going to say grow a whole ton of them in their own pots and swap them in and out. Yes. Yeah. You anyway, just answered your own question. Right on. <laughs> I, as I was asking it, I'm like, I think she's already taught this today. <laughs> so that's yeah, essentially yeah, no, it. I, and you know what? And this is not to say down the road somebody may find the magic bean that, you know, you can plant under cannabis and it thrives and, you know, it has no pest issues. And But as of yet, we've not found anything like that. And I think having them in separate pots um, – and try to look for, you know, again, where there has been a little research done um, and not just anecdotal stuff because, you know, I mean, I know anecdotal is oftentimes where research starts, but I'm just seeing a lot of people getting themselves into trouble. Because remember, people generally don't call me when everything's hunky-dory. People contact me when there's a problem. So I get to hear about what everybody's done to get to that point. And I definitely see a pattern of, you know, cover crops and, you know, same soil with multiple, multiple harvest or multiple plants planted in it. And pest numbers are just going to build in those situations. Yeah, there really is a fine area between, you know, citizen science and bro science. You know, one of them, you're actually testing things and the other one, you're probably not. It's just how you learned it from your friend or your mentor. And, uh, and, you know, we cannabis people, we've been on our own for a long time and we haven't had access necessarily to legit entomologists. So I think it's going to take a little more time for not only their research to come about and to actually be done, but also for, you know, cannabis cultivators to realize that, 
um, you know, there, there is useful information available outside of cannabis culture. So I think you're going to hate this next question, Suzanne, but let's go for it anyway, <laughs> because, you know, you are, you, you know, you are very clear that, you know, you have to be aware of your bioregion, right? And that, you know, when you answer a question, it's going to be a different answer for California versus Florida versus Maine. And that all makes sense. However, with the cultivators in the different parts of the country each having their own sorts of pests that they need to deal with. Um, how do you recommend like a mental methodology? How do you uh, suggest thinking through what trap plant or, or, or what pests the cultivator is going to want to think they, they which ones do they want to prepare for is what i'm trying to say like you you want to prepare for the pests that you don't have yet but but there is a wide range of pests that that could be a problem with cannabis plants so what hints do you give to cultivators to kind of be prescient prescient and look into the future of what pests you want to prepare for because these are the ones that you're most likely to get where you live well one of the things is that for the indoor grows, we're seeing a lot of the same stuff um, because they're a bit excluded from, you know, the outdoor ecology. It's yeah. when we have, you know, outdoor production or uh, greenhouses where the sides roll up or a high tunnel situation where we do have regional stuff. But I, you know, the one thing that has been very interesting to watch is basically how the cannabis industry has managed to spread their pests throughout their own industry. Because you look at the cannabis aphid, which was somewhat isolated to the West Coast and now is everywhere on the East Coast. And it's moved through people sharing plant material and cuts. Yeah. Um, and they've the industry's done it to themselves. They, they've completely shared hemp russet mite across all U.S. and Canada. They've totally shared... Uh, again, the cannabis aphid, they've shared root aphid, because even though the root aphid species we're dealing with has other hosts, um, it's not something you're going to walk out and find in your yard like two-spot spider mite. Yeah, you find those everywhere. But, you know, these cannabis-specific pests, I mean, everybody wants to blame the soil company. You want to blame, you know, your neighbor. But, but the reality is, is you brought in plants that were infected to begin with. And so one of the things I, you know, where did your plants come from? Look at your genetics. If you came from the West Coast, it's a good chance you brought hemp russet or cannabis aphid right along with it. Um, where if someone's on the East Coast and like, okay, we're growing from seed, then they're at very low risk of having cannabis aphid or hemp russet mites. So I don't think there needs to be necessarily preventative programs for them. But again, you know, cuts from other production facilities, especially if they originated wet co West Coast, man, you better be prepared, especially for hemp russet mite. Um, and that's that's a problem. So, I mean, when I think about a program, we, we, we follow the genetics of the plants and what's their history. And then that gives me, you know, what kind of risk are we at? Um, and so that's the first place I start. And then, um, you know, we look at what their history of pests have been. You know, have you had problems with two-spot spider mites? Have you had, 
you know, history of, you know, aphids? And if so, what species? And, you know, we look through that to try to put a program together and then always, you know, have such a good scouting program so that if there is a new pest issue that pops up, it's detected early. And then that way, then we can get in and decide the best treatment method, which oftentimes when something newer is discovered, you know, it may be doing a knockdown spray may be the best initial option. Um, unfortunately, in most states, what's allowed on cannabis, the the stuff that's approved in cannabis is are the very broad spectrum pesticides. They're non-selective. Um, in the sense that it kills good and bad and, you know, just kills everybody. So often we, after we spray, we have to come in and then re-release all the beneficials where you look at industries, again, ornamentals and vegetables, and, you know, we can be releasing parasitic wasps and we can be releasing predatory mites. But if we have a flare-up of a two-spot spider mite, we can come in and there's uh, this one chemistry. It only kills like five species of spider mites and we can spray it over there. It doesn't it only kills the two-spot spider mites and their eggs. It doesn't kill the predatory mites. It doesn't kill the parasitoids. It doesn't kill anything else. Mm. And so that's what makes cannabis growing hard is that the few products you do have are non-selective and they kill everything, good, bad, and indifferent. And so that adds to the challenge um, there with, with managing pests um, and putting programs together. And honestly, a lot of these products that, you know, are not EPA registered, you don't really know even what's in them. Yeah. And then, and then we've run into it in the cannabis scene so many times that not everything that's in the product is even on the label. Nope. And that's why, you know, I'm, I'm pretty preachy about using EPA registered <laughs> pesticides, you know, and everyone's like, oh my God, pesticides. But soaps and oils are pesticide. Pesticide only means it kills pests. So a good horticultural oil can kill a pest, but it's very safe for humans to use. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting because you see some products that have the same active ingredients and one's EPA registered and one may not be um, because sometimes people will still go ahead and EPA, they'll go ahead and register their products even though it's not required on some of these exempt products. We keep on coming to this idea that either the research hasn't been done for cannabis or the products have not been that that are work well have not been um you know properly crossed over to cannabis so one way or another cannabis is not on par with all of the work that's been done in ornamentals due to its historical prohibition in your seat you kind of be are able to look both up and down the railway right you're you're able to look at where the cultivators are and the problems that they are experiencing but you're also able to look upstream at the vendors who would you know, theoretically be selling these solutions to cultivators because they're the same folks that are selling solutions in ornamental. What are you seeing? Are you seeing that these companies are like, oh my God, cannabis is going to be um, so valuable. And so now they are all hardcore moving into research to cross apply these, these solutions and to come up with new products. Or are they kind of sitting on their hands because they don't necessarily want to play with cannabis folk? Well, it's not that they don't want to play with cannabis folk. When you just look at sheer acreage of cannabis in the United States, there's not much, mm -hmm. realistically. And whether it's a cannabis plant or it's a cornfield, if you're going to use traditional pesticides, it's generally going to be the, the per acre the same amount of spray. So if you develop products for corn, you're going to be able to sell an insane amount of chemistry 
if you're going to sell to, uh, you know, cannabis, you're not, there's, the market's in a way not there. It's not worth their time because they're not going to get the, the money. This is the exact same problem. Actually, ornamentals have. Um, and realistically, ornamentals, when you look at pesticide usage overall, they use a very small amount. And so really the products often we get in ornamentals are ones that were developed for, you know, soybeans, corn, you know, big ag. And then they're like, okay, can there be an application in ornamentals for this? And then they see if they can make them fit. Because again, overall, the ornamental market is still really not a big business as far as big ag is concerned compared to, you know, again, corn, soybeans, or even just turf. Um, And so cannabis will probably sister right along with ornamentals and be considered a specialty crop, kind of like cut herbs. Um, And that basically in ornamentals, again, we just kind of get the crumbs in a way. Um, Now, we still get good products, but, you know, when we get a new pest, like right now in Florida, we're dealing with this hibiscus bud weevil. Is any chemical company going to take the time to develop a chemistry that's going to take 10 years? It's going to cost millions and millions of dollars to treat for that pest. Absolutely not, because they'll never get the return on it. And it's the same thing in cannabis. It's, I don't think, it has nothing to do with the fact it's cannabis. It has to do with sheer acreage. Now, if outdoor hemp ever gets to the levels being grown that like corn, soybeans, wheat, you know, and all that's being grown at, well, then there'll definitely be products for that market. And then it will probably be looked at to see, okay, can we get a specialty label for Yeah, it'll, tr- it'll trickle down to THC products. <laughs> yes, yeah. that's exactly what will happen. And, you know, I, I, I see mixed growers out there too, because there's some growers that will just never use a synthetic pesticide on cannabis. You know, that's just, and that's fine. You know, that's, I'm not judging anybody. There are other people that are like, oh my God, I can't wait till we have registered pesticides to make this growing a lot easier. I mean, you know, you have people all the way across the board and some people are in the middle and it's just like, you know, just give me what works. And so it will be interesting to see how, if it ever, you know, we need the, it's all the legal stuff becoming federally legal so that the EPA can register products and, and all that stuff. But even if then, let's just say tomorrow that EPA products could be registered through the EPA for, um, indoor cannabis, it's still going to be years before products will readily come available. We might be able to get some special use labels, which can be pushed through, and those, you know, are temporary use labels, but you still need research to back up that it's safe. And, you know, cannabis is somewhat considered more of a food crop. Um, My guess is, though, is that probably the tobacco companies have already been doing a lot of testing and they probably have got a lot of research already in their back pocket just waiting um, that we don't know about because it's, you know, still a lot of secret, secret stuff because there is big money in this. Um, And I think there's probably more research done than anybody knows, but you can't publicly let anybody know you've done the research. Right, they don't want to. They don't want to give up their position or or um, suggest what they're working on IP wise. Sounds yep. like for the for the time being, we're going to be putting together like various biological hacks and and paying uh, higher prices when products do come out. 
So let's go ahead and take our last short break. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is entomologist Suzanne Wainwright-Evans, the bug lady. One of the reasons why no-till cannabis growing is so valued by farmers is because the mycelium networks in the soil remain established from year to year. And we know these fungal networks are essential because they are the nutrient superhighways that extend far and wide in the substrate to feed your plants. The trouble with growing in new soils or blended cocoa substrates is that it takes most of the plant's life just to create these mycelium highways. Dynamico endomycorrhizal fungi inoculant reduces that time and gets your plant eating a wider array of nutrients faster. And it's three times the concentration of the current leading brand in the U.S. at 900 propagules per gram of two fungal species selected specifically for cannabis cultivation. This new product called Dynamico is the result of 30 years of research and trials at the Volcani Agriculture Research Institute in Israel. It has also been vigorously trialed by cannabis and food growers across the U.S. since the product first arrived here last year. You may have already even heard about Dynamico by its original name, Dynamike. Now, Dynamico is available at grow shops and online in the United States for the first time. I love using Dynamico to both speed up the growth of mycelium networks in the soil, but also as a biostimulant to make clone cuttings more virile. You can see side-by-sides showing the comparative growth on their Instagram at Dynamico. If you demand reliable growing results and appreciate the importance of an active root zone in creating a thriving plant, I encourage you to check out Dynamico at dynamico.com and find out where you can get yours. That's D-Y-N-O-M-Y-C-O.com. Whether you are starting with new beds or pots, or if you want to add some zing to tired soil, choose Dynamico to maximize your plant's potential. Dynamico endomycorrhizal inoculant. If you listen to Shaping Fire and you grow your own cannabis, chances are high that you are very particular about the inputs you use for growing. People like us painstakingly self-educate on cannabis nutrients and techniques so we can cultivate the best tasting and cleanest flowers possible. And when we go to purchase those nutrients, we want to be sure that our supplier shares our values and is providing exceptional quality. This is why I recommend buildasoil.com to my friends who care about quality. Buildasoil empowers organic growers to do their best work by sourcing and shipping only the finest cannabis growing supplies. From organic inputs, soils, soil testing, and pots, to lights, growing tents, sprayers, and cover crops, Build-A-Soil founder Jeremy Silva doesn't just stock his store with what's available. He goes deep to personally vet each product for quality and determine that there isn't a better version of the product that he could be selling. Because of this arduous process, you know that your options on buildasoil.com have been carefully curated to create the results you are looking for. Not only that, but the build a soil way is a philosophy that will permeate your interaction with the company. From website design to pricing and shipping to after purchase support, Jeremy and his team always strive to do their best and give you the best customer service in the business. Check out buildasoil.com today for top tier quality cultivation supplies and a friends and family buying experience. And check out their educational videos and extraordinary social media while you're there too. Quality organic growing supplies at buildasoil.com. 
Growing cannabis in greenhouses is taking over the cannabis industry. An efficient and effective blend of sunshine-grown terpene profiles and the controlled environment of indoor, greenhouses can be the best of both worlds. For many greenhouse operators, though, building their greenhouse before gaining insight into how cannabis greenhouses differ from ornamental crops can be the start of a world of hurt. Eric Brandstad and his team at Greenhouse Advisory Group have the experience and technical know-how to help you avoid these pitfalls. Eric Brandstad has been helping cannabis growers find locations, design, build, and equip their greenhouses for over a decade, first starting in Northern California, but expanding over the last five years to helping clients throughout the world. He has an impeccable reputation for both depth of knowledge and kindness in communication. You can hear Eric explain some of the challenges facing cannabis greenhouses and how to overcome them in episode number 41 of the Shaping Fire podcast. No matter where I go in the country, good people with smart backgrounds still are making the mistake of building without knowing cannabis, and it causes them to burn through capital and time fast. Everyone has their own failure point. For some, it is improper ventilation planning. For others, it is surface temperatures of the building or the plant's leaves or both. Some folks that build their greenhouse from scratch make really basic errors like placement of the greenhouse on the property or not understanding the natural environment where the greenhouse sits. Some have even built a decent greenhouse but are inefficient in their deployment of light deprivation techniques and never really hit their target yields. It's great when you learn from your mistakes, but it's even better when you learn from the mistakes of others. When you bring on Greenhouse Advisory Group, you will learn from the mistakes of their many clients, and you'll take advantage of the best practices developed by Eric Brandstad over his years of working with clients just like you. From location development to choosing a builder and tricking out your new greenhouse or retrofitting or rescuing your failing greenhouse, Eric will help you through it. Visit greenhouseadvisorygroup.com to learn more and connect with Eric and his team. That's Greenhouse Advisory Group. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is entomologist Suzanne Wainwright-Evans, the bug lady. So let's take a one step back to the end of the last set, Suzanne. Um, We were talking about... Um, the cost associated with buying these products, and I kind of make this, you know, off off the cuff comment at the end, as before going to break that, you know, we people in cannabis are used to paying more for things. We call it, you know, the green tax, right? That we all have to pay a little bit more for things because there hasn't been a lot of research done on a lot of the products that we need, and everybody kind of because of cannabis is taboo nature, everybody thinks they can kind of stick it to us a little bit. But during the break, you're all like, yeah, and cannabis people don't really know how to shop right. And I'm like, whoa, now that's an interesting thought. So let's break that out for everybody to hear. What are your best practices that cannabis folks should know about how to shop for these solutions to get the most bang for their buck? So, yeah, so what I find is, well, I call it the cannabis tax. Um, which just so you know, Bug Lady Consulting does not charge cannabis tax on consulting. <laughs> I charge the same fee whether you're ornamental vegetables or cannabis. We so, appreciate you know. that, Suzanne. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, it's to me, it's. I mean, and I know I get haters this too, but to me, it's just another crop. I mean, it's just it's another crop. Let's solve the problem and you know move on. But a- as far as the economics, so yes, people think that they can charge more to the cannabis industry because there's this idea that they can afford it. I don't think they can because, you know, price is getting, I mean, there's more competition and growers need to learn to 
grow without saying to me, it doesn't matter how much it costs. Please do not say that to me because it always matters how much it costs because, again, you need to turn a profit if you want your business to stay in business. What I recommend to my growers is that when you need to buy products, especially uh, let's say spray products. Um, you guys all know I'm in love with product Suffoil X. It's one of my favorite things. Okay, you need to buy a product. Well, don't go just on the internet and, and search and necessarily there. You need to get connected with traditional horticultural supply companies that have been servicing greenhouses and nurseries for years. Those tend to have your better pricing um, because you're going to pay a premium generally. I mean, occasionally you can find a good price on the internet, but generally um, those companies are going to uh, work with you uh, with these products and get you better pricing. Also, I mean, I've had numerous heart attacks over the years looking at biocontrol agents and what some of these cannabis people have been paying. You know, a sachet that should cost you know, maybe 15 cents. I've seen cannabis people paying $2 through distributors. Um, uh, I, I know, again, this always frustrates some people, but I, you know, when it comes to buying the biocontrol agents, I think it's important to attempt to buy them direct from the insectaries because generally you're going to get the best pricing. The bugs are going to come directly to you from the insectary and you tend to get better information because those people are for the most part trained on their products. I mean, just as in the industry, there's some you know, idiots out there. But for the most part, that's where you're going to get your best information and pricing. Also, when you call and ask for pricing, because for the biocontrol agents, you are not going to find pricing for them online. If you're a commercial grower or a larger hobby grower, you know, call them and, you know, give them your size and say, you know, this is how much, you know, we're planning on doing. And so that way you can get grower pricing, not necessarily, you know, retail pricing off a website. Because again, it's unbelievable some of the prices that are charged on some of these retail websites that are distributors for biocontrol agents. So do your shopping. And this is a uh, Something that um, I recommend, again, to all my growers is, and you can't do it this year because everything's canceled this year, um, but get to, you know, horticultural trade shows, too. And that way you can get connected with the horticultural, again, professional companies that have been around a long time that sell at what I call fair pricing, um, you know, no. Are all cannabis distributors ga price gouging? Absolutely not. But is it happening? Absolutely it is. Um, so just get connected with, you know, these, I don't want to say older, that sounds bad, but, you know, <laughs> as well-established companies that, um, you know, can provide you biocontrol agents and chemistries at, you know, reasonable pricing. Um, but I guess I shouldn't have said it that way. The, the, the spray products, fertilizers, soils, and things like that. But again, the biocontrol agents, I think, are a bit better coming direct from the insectary. It sounds like, too, that a lot of these companies don't have their, um, their price list online. And so it's well worth adding the extra step to email them and ask for a price list, even though all of us you know, want convenience because by the time, you know, after the, after the day in the greenhouse or out outside, by the time you get around to shopping for this stuff, it's probably in the evening after your dinner and folks really want a fast solution. And it sounds like what you're saying is don't just 
buy from the, 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 the cheapest e-commerce site that you can find because there's probably going to be more middlemen there. And really, it's worth the extra effort to write to the company, get their price list or catalog, add that extra step because you, you'll be creating a relationship where you'll be paying less for a product over time. Right. Yes. And so, I mean, it's one thing if, oh my gosh, we just need this product, fine, pay whatever to get it. But, you know, if, if you know, especially with things like fertilizer, I mean, you're going to need that over and over and over and over again. And you need to get some with somebody that, you know, is, is going to provide, uh, I would say, fair pricing. Again, I, I mean, I just can't believe some of the, the markups I've seen, like on Persimilis, I saw online, I think it was $85 for 2000 Persimilis, where you can get them from an insectary for 15 Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of hustling going on in our scene right now. I, your comment on, uh, on when you need it fast, you know, sometimes you just have to get it and you pay a higher price and you go. And uh, I was thinking about the same thing about banker and trap plants. For example, people who are at this point in the season and they're hearing this episode and they're all like, oh, I think I want to add some some. Uh, you know, helpful companion plants to the garden before the season's over. And so, you know, you recommend uh, insightfully uh, that you should probably start with a seed so you are growing your own and you know that it's not bringing in any pesticides with it. However, if people want to bring in, uh, you know, pre, you know, starts or pre-established plants, is there a way for that to be reasonably done? Or are you saying across the board, do not do this because it's a total mess to try? I think it's a huge risk because I, you know, I, I needed aphids. What did I do? I went down to my local garden center and bought some pepper plants because you know what? They had aphids on them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. <laughs> you could count on it. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. The thing is, it's it's interesting though. You know, when the plants are grown in densities like that, they have pest issues. You plant those peppers out, and if you put them in your yard, the aphids are going to be gone in a few days because ladybirds, surfers, everybody comes in and cleans them out. You put them inside my guest bedroom window, and those aphids thrive to the point you couldn't even see. Um, you couldn't even see the plant through all the aphids. It was very interesting because, again, I went down, bought a bunch of plants, put some in the garden, put some in the guest room, and the ones outside are, you know, three feet tall and dark green leaves, and the ones in the guest room are just encrusted in aphids. It just shows you the difference between indoor and outdoor growing when just left to its own because outside Mother Nature came in and took care of it. And as clean as you think those plants are, mm, they're going to have something. And, you know, alyssum, it can have thrips in it. There's no doubt about that. But, um, you know, the, the generally outside, it will bring in aureus, which helps keep the thrips level below what we call an economic threshold. If you were to just buy alyssum and bring in thrips with no aureus, you bring them into your grow, you close the door, what's going to happen with those thrips? The numbers are probably going to go up, and depending on what species, they may move into your cannabis. So that's why starting them from seed so they're clean from the beginning, um, again, it, it's really high risk. And again, oftentimes when people contact me, they already know they're in the doghouse because they <laughs> bought plants in they shouldn't have done. And usually it's you know, that, oh, my neighbor, you know, just needed me or my friend needed me to watch these couple plants for him while he was out of town and poof. So this is why I really push with 
commercial growing facilities to have a quarantine area. It, let's say you absolutely had to bring either cannabis in or another plant. At least hold it for a week or two separate so you can watch it and see if any pest problems do develop. Um, but, you know, for alyssum and pepper, I would absolutely grow those from seed. And we actually, um, again, you know, back to what we do in ornamentals, which is interesting because in ornamentals, you know what we do? We look to the vegetable industry to see what they do to manage pests and then adapt it to what we can do for ornamentals. And that's what cannabis is doing now. We're looking to the ornamentals to see how we can adapt it for that crop. So there's a lot of us looking across the fence um, and developing these systems because the banker plant systems um, were more uh, looked at for vegetable production. And then the ornamental guys kind of shanghaied it, and now the, the cannabis guys are going to shanghai it, which is fine. This is what we do. Look to other cropping systems and adapt it for our growing situation. But for um, thrips, because, you know, I did get a ton of uh, people in the spring contacting me about thrips, especially on the West Coast. And when I was out traveling in January and February on the West Coast, I saw a lot of thrips out there. So for, like, the thrips banker plants, um, whether it – well, with the peppers, we actually start our peppers in winter. That's when we start our seeds because we really want them blooming um, and having pollen and nectar by February, March, again, depending kind of where you are in the U.S. And then as soon as they're blooming, we start inoculating them with the aureus, the minute pirate bug. So the time, you know, I will say the northern region, we'll just talk about that for now, uh, right now wakes up with insects and we start having thrips issues in early spring you already have the standing army of aureus all ready to go you don't start your seeds in springtime necessarily uh, we actually start the banker plants before we start our actual crops in spring so i know there's somebody out here curious about this so i'm going to go one more step down this path and say we often will bring in clones from other people that who have got a questionably clean garden and we'll do some sort of dip. Can we simply dip these incoming banker plants um, and the same way that we would a clone? Or does, that, does it not work the same way because there's such a wide variety of pests that could be on them? Well, so the... The dips, again, there's different dips for different target pests. And for things like thrips, the eggs are inside of plant tissue. So dips aren't going to do anything for that. Um, so just just to get that out there, yeah. um, you, you can um, – you could dip them. Um, I'd be very careful about doing it because, like, I don't think there's been any dipping research done on alyssum. And alyssum's, like – grows so fast i mean you really there's no need to i mean you can just grow it and also the dipping could kill the pest but again you don't know if they've been treated with a pesticide a systemic now this is the really kind of weird not weird thing but most if you had to go buy something i mean you absolutely had no choice honestly i would probably go to a big box store and buy them over an independent garden center and i know i can hear all the haters already you ask why well, because the growers that I work with that sell to big box stores like Lowe's, Home Depot, Walmart, they are not allowed anymore to use neonic pesticides, the systemic pesticides, which can cause a lot of problems with things like aureus, where independent garden centers have no restrictions on using that kind of stuff. 
So um, you are probably safer that using, um, again, something from a, a big box retail place because they have more restrictions on pesticide juice. Now, I'm sure I'm going to get some hater emails saying, well, we're independent and we don't use Neonic. Yes, there's going to be independents that don't, but they don't have any restrictions on them where the guys that sell to the big box stores do. And I work close with a lot of them and I, you know, we can't use neonics. They're gone from their programs. And what they've done is they've really stepped up their biocontrol programs. Some of these larger greenhouses I work with, uh, Metrolina's one, it's a 180 acre greenhouse. When they get their biocontrol agents, um, they're coming on pallets because they're using so many of them these oh. days. Um, I know that one of the things that I dare say annoys you is that when, when folks see challenges in their garden, they immediately assume that it's pests. And, you know, I've heard you point out multiple times that we need to know more about diseases too, because more often than not, it's actually a disease vector instead of a pest vector. Would you speak to that? Yeah, I, I, and again, please don't hate me. I'm doing this because I'm trying to help the industry. But, you know, the overall knowledge level of cannabis growers really needs to be elevated higher on, 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 on being more technical. Um, unfortunately, what a lot of people do is they look at a problem and then they try to match pictures online. And most, I will say that most of the diagnostic images online for cannabis are wrong. Um, and, you know, everybody's quick to blame things on insects because insects are more visible where pathogens uh, can be a lot harder to diagnose. And so a lot of the times, you know, I get images and they're like, oh, what's, you know, making these dark spots on my leaves? What insects doing this? What miticide do I spray? And Well, no, it's a disease problem. You know, for me, it, I always say it's not my department. It doesn't have six or eight legs, you know. Hmm. It, it's, 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 it needs to be dealt with by a plant pathologist. Um, and there aren't many, you know, actually educated, like when I say educated, I mean, like, went to college for this, entomologists working in hemp and cannabis. There are definitely some of us around, but there's not many. Um, and there's even fewer plant pathologists. Um, and so this is the problem. It's hard to get good information, but there's a lot of guessing. And unfortunately, people will just post pictures on Instagram or there's lots of Facebook groups. And, you know, what's wrong with my plant? And I'll scroll through and you'll see 40 different answers and none of them are right. Or you may not be able to diagnose the problem from the image. Because oftentimes with uh, nutrition, you know, you, you need to send in for leaf tissue analysis to get um, a report of what's actually going on um, in your foliage or in your soil. And, you know, it, it kind of folds into nutrition, too, because people think, oh, we've got insect problems. No, that's a nutritional problem. And, you know, I talk to people about, you know, soil. I mean, Again, agronomy is not my wheelhouse at all. I mean, I, I took it in college and everything, and I know enough to be dangerous. But, you know, I'm finding that people don't really understand, you know, pH, cation exchange capacity. People don't know how to do pour-through tests. People aren't getting their water tested. They're not getting their soils tested. And, and granted, you know, a home gardener who's growing three or four plants probably not going to 
you know, go through those steps. But anything larger than that, if you want to become a good grower, you really need to have good analysis done to really know what the problem is. Then you know for the next time. And for me personally in my career, the stuff I work with, the insect identification is what I learned in college. I learned basic insect biology and that kind of stuff. But the actual problems I deal with is, is stuff I faced over the last 30 years. And when I didn't know what it was, an insect or mite, I'd send it off for ID. And then I would know the next time. And so I've learned through, you know, getting more educated by using diagnostic labs um, and, and, and help. And that's what's going to make you a better grower, not guessing that you think you know what the problem is, but really finding out really what the problem is. And now since hemp has opened up, you know, through the farm bill and blah, 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 if you collect your insects, you can send them in and get them identified. Also, you don't always have to, you know, with extension, you don't have to put what the host plant is, but a lot of extension now is working with hemp. And you can say, okay, these are my pests off my hemp crop. You know, what are they? And you can get the proper identification. Um, and there's more testing labs uh, that are doing, um, you know, hemp uh, leaf tissue analysis stuff. So the, these these places are out there to help you. It's just the industry needs to take advantage of them. I think it's going to be very interesting to see the the new skill sets that the next generation of cultivators are going to have. You know, the, 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 the young whippersnappers who are like in their early 20s and they have hit their you know, age of majority at the perfect time when cannabis is coming out of prohibition. And so they're able to actually go to university for, you know, these types of, um, you know, diagnostic and pests and agricultural aspects, and then come up and spend their entire life of cultivating cannabis with the, uh, you know, professional supports and education and versus those of us like, you know, me at 50 and, well, 49, whatever. Um, and, and those of us who have been doing this in the dark for so long, we have been trying to, you know, it, it's felt like Sisyphus, right? Trying to yep. trying to push up, doing this, you know, the, the rock up the mountain, and then it just has it slide right back, trying to do this without the proper tools and, and in the dark. Um, so let's talk about where to find more information on these uh, banker plants and trap plant um, solutions, these protocols that you're talking about, right? So, so if, if they're really unique to bioregion and they're unique for, um, you know, per particular species, is there, so for anybody who's going to give a damn enough to do this extensive research, is there a good resource for them where they can learn about these these programs, like your, the APHID program you've been using as an example, where they can learn what the other programs are for different pests so they don't have to reinvent the wheel? I'm, I'm sure, I know these programs exist, but where do people learn about them? Well, unfortunately, there's not much written. And the problem is, too, it's a, it's a moving target because things change. If, if you Google, like, pepper banker plants, years ago we were using black pearl pepper. And then some great research came out of Europe. I think Gerben Messling did it, um, where he found that, oh, no, wait a minute. If you use purple flash pepper, you can produce way more aureus than black pearl. So then everybody's like, change okay now we're recommending this so if you go back and read older stuff it may not 
be exactly accurate. And so this is why it's a moving target of us working out in the field. And honestly, the the people um, like myself, uh, Ron Valentine, who's with BioWorks, Kelly Vance with Beneficial Insectary, who are working in this stuff every day, honestly – we're so busy doing it. Unfortunately, we're not writing about it and we're not, you know, we're not, you know, you know, take, I mean, none of us do blogs. I mean, occasionally we'll spit out a magazine article here and there, but that's what makes it difficult because, um, most people just want to go to the internet and do research on it today, where if you want the most current information, you have to get to the meetings where, again, people like myself or Ron, where we're teaching workshops, because those are going to give you the most what we know today. Because, again, recommendations I gave five, six years ago, I know more now, and they're not I, I that may not be accurate today for a particular situation. And so and that's one thing that frustrates me about the internet is you put an article out there and it's there forever. It doesn't go away and people then can get dated information. So always when you're looking at uh information, look at the date on it. And make sure, you know, oh, is this still gonna be relevant? I mean, basic biology, yes, that pretty much doesn't change. But, you know, we're, we're smarter today than we were five years ago on banker plants. But, you know, for regionality on banker plants, you know, we're doing the same programs in greenhouses in, you know, West Coast, middle the United States and East Coast because there aren't that many developed programs. What is more likely to change somewhat are um, the, the regionality of your pest pressures. Like this year, actually, it's been a pretty bad spider mite year um, where we haven't had big spider mite flare-ups in greenhouses for several years because the years before this, it's been broad mite. So we have, you know, yearly pests as well as seasonal pests um, that, you know, make us alter our programs. But there's not one good source nestle to go to now on the aphid banker plant systems which i know people are interested in because aphid parasites um can get expensive and again this program only works for aphidius colmani um which again works for um the green peach and cotton melon aphid and will we know it does parasitize the cannabis aphid um probably the best place is to get information from the producers of it. Um, not all insectaries support banker plant systems. There's a pretty clean dividing line um, down, down the line on who does and who doesn't. Um, I'll tell you beneficial insectary is a huge supporter of banker plant systems. Um, they sell them. Um, they work with their growers with them. Um, you can also get uh, them from Sierra. You can get banker plants also from Sierra Biological in uh, New York State. And you're able to get information from them. You also, uh, I mentioned Ron Valentine before. He's written several articles um, on banker plants. But again, watch the dates because things have changed. And I do believe he has some literature um, that he's done for BioWorks on banker plants. I, I'm pretty sure they have that up. Um, so those are places that you can get them. So you're almost better off getting them from the actual companies that are out there doing and working with it than necessarily Googling. And, you know, it's also kind of like 
you know, baking a cake back, you know, in 1900, your grandma made the best cake and she'll give you the recipe, but she's not going to give you that one special ingredient. Mm. You know, why would any of us put all our information out on the internet and tell you exactly how to do everything when, you know, I've got, you know, being a consultant, I've got this problem with, in the cannabis industry, everybody else thinks they're a consultant and people just want my information that they can turn around and resell. It's amazing to me how many consultants contacting me wanting me to solve problems for their customers that they're getting paid to do, but they want to get free information from me. So there's no way I would put all this information out for free on the Internet because somebody's just going to snake it and sell it. Okay, so to wrap this up, this is going to be interesting because I uh, normally try to end my shows on a really nice up note, right? <laughs> but, you know, this, the, this, our conversation today has not gone at all as I planned. I really thought that, you know, we were going to talk about the, you know, the top five or six pests that cannabis folk are, you know, mostly coming into contact this year. And we would talk about our, you know, our best handful of trap and banker plants and, you know, people should mix and match them in their garden or something like that. But actually, um, it's a lot messier than I thought it was. Not only the the um, identification, the development of the protocols, the pre-growing plants. My God, uh, the, the 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 charging them in advance with non-pest benefit food for the beneficials. That I'd never considered that. That sounds like a major pain in the ass. And so what what I'm seeing here is that really for folks who want to go down this path to help uh, decrease their pest pressure, it's either A, some graduate level research that hopefully you will do once significantly for your for your grow where you are and then you have to keep up on what comes out new every year, but it's you got this big upfront research labor time and then to kind of like build out your program and or you have to go really much more hardcore on prevention so that um, you don't, you know, it takes, you don't really have to do banker and trap plants. That's not where you're going to put your emphasis. You're going to put your emphasis on on prevention. But that is not an inspiring finish to a show, Suzanne. That is that is not a positive spin on uh, any right. of this. What, what do you got for me? How, how can okay. we end this on a positive Here. note? Let me just give you this. Again, I... I I guess because I try to be so detail-oriented, maybe sometimes I, because I want people to be successful and I just want people to be aware of what they're getting into. And again, if you talked to, you know, some of my ornamental growers, you know, it's kind of taken them a few years to really get their stride with their banker plant programs. But once they got them, they got them. And, you know, the, it, 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 it works. It is not for everybody. I will stress that. I mean, I, I think I said before, I, I think maybe 5% of ornamental growers are using banker plants. Oh, it's wow. a very small amount. It's, you've got to be the right kind of person to do this. But that said, if you are dealing with aphids, whether it be, again, not all aphid species, but if you're dealing with cotton melon or cannabis aphid and you're using Aphidius colmani, the simplest, not cheapest the simplest thing you could do is every two weeks you can buy in the 
barley aphid banker plant. And what you do is you, you get a clump of barley that's grown, um, I think it's grown in Rockwell, and it's covered in aphids. And you just go set that in your greenhouse. You know, you got to put, put some water underneath it. Some people will plunk it into a pot and let it grow. And then as you release your parasites and they're flying around, if they don't find enough aphids in your crop, they'll go reproduce on that. Where it gets more complicated is when people grow their own aphids, but people will do that for economic savings. They buy one aphid plant and then they'll, you know, in another part of the facility, they'll just basically start a mini aphid farm. So instead of buying a plant every two weeks, they just take a plant out of their aphid farm and set it into their facility. So the easy way to start would be just to buy a plant in every two weeks and just set it out. It can be as simple as that, but you have to make sure that Aphidius colmani is going to target the aphid you're dealing with. And then that will help you build more parasitoids in your facility. So in the long run, you can actually buy fewer parasitoids paying for the cost of buying in the plants. Does that make it a little more unicorns uh, and rainbows for you? <laughs> Probably not, but, but it, is, it, is a, it is a good place to get started um, because the, the mountain of research is high, and for people who want to get started with something now, that is a great uh, low barrier to entry thing that they can start with. Wow. Right, and that's for indoors. Now, if you're outside, and actually I do a whole presentation on this on attracting native beneficials, Without having to go through everything, the simplest thing, if you are outside biodiversity, that is what you need. Just plant biodiversity. Well, that's, that's nice. And so, now, now there is unicorn and rainbows, right? Grow outside and grow a whole bunch of variety of companion plants all around them so you attract all the natural beneficials. There you go. Well, I would, I would call them insectary plants. Insectary Be plants. I would call that's what I classify this. And again, depends on where you are because what you grow in South Florida is going to be what you, you know different than growing in Yakima, Washington. But what I've done for my vegetable garden is I have I first planted all kinds of stuff out. Again, you know, calendula, yarrow. Um, I tried gumfrina last year, and then I just look at the plant. I'll go spend time, and I'll just sit. I have a little plastic stool and sit there and watch who comes to visit it. If I see Things that I want coming around, you know, surfeit flies, decanted flies, things like that. Boom. I'm going to plant more of those. When I did Gumfrina last year, nothing ever visited the Gumfrina. Gumfrina's out. And that's how, from my yard, I've selected what plants. Um, if you're in the northeast corridor growing outdoors, per, uh, Penn State did an amazing um, project in uh, 2005 where they roped in all these master gardeners and they give them little stools and they sat at plants and then they measured the number of pollinators visiting the number of surfeit fly visiting the number of butterflies visiting and then they listed them out and so you know for me i want you know all the pollinator and, and fly plants and so i've pulled from that list a plant in my yard and you know, generally these plants aren't the plants you're going to go find down at your garden center because, again, the garden center stuff has been bred for what humans want, not what the insects want. So I've been, you know, digging deeps into the bowels of buying weirdo seeds and, you know, uh, pygnantiums, the, the mountain mints, are 
phenomenal for pollinators and decanid flies. And decanid flies, you go Google decanid flies to learn about them, but decanid flies are amazing. You want them around. Um, and so by doing things like that is how you can select plants that do well in your area. And if you grow one plant one year, and it's like covered in aphids, it's like, yeah, maybe we shouldn't grow that one this year. But if you grow like milkweed and it gets covered with milkweed aphids, those aren't going to move into your cannabis. And those will provide food resources for ladybird beetles and surfid flies and lacewings. So that has now turned into a banker plant in itself. Wow. I like that too because it, it it creates a sense of momentum, you know, in the cult in the cultivation area, right? Um, instead of there necessarily being having to be all this research up front, these are some actions that you can do now while you're you know boning up on the rest of the science. Yes, and 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 this is what I'll do. I'll look at stuff and then I'll go to university and say, hey, this is what I'm seeing. Can we work on something? But understand that these research projects takes years for them to happen, and it takes money and time, and that's why we don't get a lot of the, kind of this research because nobody's willing to pay for this kind of research. Well, hopefully that stuff will come along soon. Suzanne, thank you so much for spending time with us. You know, whenever I get the opportunity to hear you at a convention, you know, it's always a fast-paced, wild ride. And I learn a lot really fast, and I know I miss more than I even learned. And this has been the same kind of thing. High energy, lots of information, the kind of episode that people listen to more than once. So so thank you very much for sharing your experience, both the, both the good and the things we don't want to here um you know you're invaluable to our scene and and thanks for you know not only doing the the ornamentals and the other plants that you you know have been bread and butter for you all these years but thanks for coming over to work with us in cannabis too oh well i love working with you guys i have to say through all of this the cannabis got through the all the covid up because honestly i've not been working for almost three months now because i can't travel but you know what the cannabis people have done a good job of taking care of me and contacting me and just checking in on me i mean yes everybody wants bugs id but that's fine i enjoy doing that um but you know i really do enjoy working with the cannabis industry and i've made some really good friends through it and i uh, love working with you guys well fantastic i consider you a good friend as well it's been nice to chat with you and i very much look forward to all this quarantine being over so that uh we can say hello in person at conventions again so if you want to find out more about Suzanne and her Bug Lady Consulting, you should make sure to go to BugLadyConsulting.com. And her Instagram is at BugLadySuzanne. And if you want to keep up on the, uh, the, the reports and studies and science that Suzanne finds relevant, uh, make sure to check out the Bug Lady Consulting page on Facebook. Because even though Facebook is not super friendly with cannabis, it's very easy for Suzanne to post the papers there because, you know, links aren't so easy to use on Instagram. So make sure to follow her at Bug Lady Consulting on Facebook as well. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the weekly newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news and product reviews. 
On the Shaping Fire website, you will also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. For information on me and where I'll be speaking, you can check out shangolos.com. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Lose.